Hi, I'm Darren Peppard. Welcome to the Leaning into Leadership podcast, the podcast dedicated to today's hardworking leader. Join me every Sunday for leadership insight, inspiration, and a little pep talk to keep you rolling down your road to awesome. And I know that I'm a bridge builder. And I, I know that I've lived through some really painful things when it comes to race. And so how can I use my story, but also give people really practical strategies to take my story, think about their own story, and then apply that story to healing their own community. Welcome into episode number 50. That's right. Episode number 50 of the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. Ah, man, that feels good, doesn't it? 50 episodes. Pretty amazing. Thank you to everybody for all your support and continuing to listen. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining the show. Go back, check out some of the other episodes. Um, We've really been having a lot of fun here on the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. And today, my guest on episode number 50, you heard a little teaser of what she's going to talk about right before I jumped in here with you, but my guest is Erin Jones, and let me tell you a little bit about her. Erin has been involved in schools for about 26 years. She has taught in all kinds of different environments, folks, predominantly black environments, predominantly white environments, and in some of the most diverse communities in the nation. Erin received an award as the most innovative foreign language teacher in 2007 while teaching in Tacoma and was the Washington State Milken Educator of the Year in 2008. She received recognition at the White House in March of 2013 as a champion of change and was the Washington State PTA's Outstanding Educator in 2015. Erin went on to work at the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction and ultimately threw her name into the ring, and we'll talk about this today during the episode, and ran for the state superintendent of public instruction. She was the first black woman to run for any state office in Washington state, and she lost that race by a mere one percentage points. Erin is one of my favorite people. We had an absolutely amazing conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. We're going to get to that right on the other side of these messages. Leaders, your educators deserve to have a leader who believes in them, who supports them, and who lifts them up when they're down. Right now, they deserve that reminder that they are traveling their own road to awesome. On that road to awesome, we focus on the things we can control and we let go of the things we can't. On that road to awesome, we rise by lifting others, not by pushing each other down. And on that road to awesome, we change the world one conversation at a time. Leaders, I want to work with your schools. I want to work with you and your educators to lift them up, to honor the work they do, and to let them know they are not in this alone. Let's get together. Let's have a conversation. Let's get your teachers back on that road to awesome to find that love, to find that clarity, and to walk in their purpose. Reach out to us at roadtoawesome.net for your opportunity to bring Road to Awesome to your school. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. 
Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. All right. I am so excited, Aaron Jones, to have you here on the Leaning Into Leadership Podcast. Welcome in, my friend. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm on the other side of the flu, so I'm feeling 100% better than I was if you'd asked me last Monday. <laughs> yeah, I noticed uh, a couple of your posts on social media, and I mean, you were definitely very transparent. I'm sure that part of that comes from having run for office, and we will talk about that. But um, definitely looked like you were battling it pretty hard or, you know, on the verge of, it you was, know, it was bad. <laughs> surrendering. It was, you know, and I... I had COVID a year ago on over winter break, and um, this was worse than that for sure. Ugh, that is no fun. Yeah. No That's fun at fun. all. Well, I'm glad to see glad to see that you are on the recovery side of that of that battle. That's. That's definitely good to see. So, just really quick, Aaron, for my listeners who maybe don't know who you are, just give them a quick who Aaron Jones is, what you're about, where you're coming from, some of the background. Yeah. So it's hard to do because I, I do talks about who I am everywhere, and those are usually 45 minutes to 90 minutes. I'm not going to do that. I'll do the really quick version. But for anyone who's interested in knowing more about my biography, you can check out one of my three TEDx talks. Um, I talk about my story there. I have a really unique story. I was born in 1971 out of the body of a white woman who obviously was not did not have me with a white man because you can't see me on the podcast but well you can see me in the intro you'll see a picture of me the hair gives it away that i am not fully white (laughs) and so she back in 71 was not allowed to keep me and put me up for adoption so i've never met my mother she literally left me in the hospital um i started life in the children's home society in minneapolis minnesota um was adopted by two educators from Northern Minnesota who had never actually met a black person before and um, decided they wanted to adopt babies that were not going to be adopted. Um, Still today, I think in Minnesota, close to 80% of black babies don't get adopted. So back then it was not much different. I was adopted by them. That was not an easy transition, I don't think, for my parents. They were both esteemed members of their community, and I know they got a lot of looks and a lot of attitude for that. Um, I found out when I was four, about to be five, that we were going to move to the Netherlands. My dad had taken a job sight unseen at the American School of The Hague in Europe. And so we would go from small town Minnesota to across an ocean to a country we'd never visited. And I grew up at that school, um, basically from 76 to 89. I went to the United Nations School. So I got to be around really powerful people my whole life. I went from orphanage to meeting presidents and royalty. And it's so interesting because with the Brit- the British queen dying this year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about royalty, the queens who were in charge in the Netherlands during my childhood. Queen Juliana was the queen mother and then her daughter, um, Queenie and Beatrix were both at my school pretty regularly. So I got to see royalty and actually Prince Willem Alexander, who's now the king, he and I did model United Nations together in high school. He's a couple years older than me, but I got to be around really powerful people and I got to travel a lot. I was an athlete of three sports and um, also an honors band kid. And we got to travel to other countries as part of that. 
And so I speak four languages. Um, I've traveled and played sports and music in 12 countries. I've traveled to four more since, since then, but I've gotten to travel a lot. And I knew as a little kid, I want to do something that changes the world. And I, I knew that I needed to come back to the US to go to college to do that. So I came back to the US as an 18 year old kid Again, sight unseen. I did not visit at colleges, which I would tell parents today as a mom of three adult children now, make sure you visit the college your kid's going to go to. Um, but we didn't have the luxury of that because my parents were teachers with teacher pay and we couldn't afford to fly back and visit colleges. So we had to trust the brochures. And so I applied to um, some really great schools and got into Princeton and I got into Bryn Mawr sight unseen, chose Bryn Mawr College right outside of Philadelphia because Princeton was terrifying to me and they also didn't give me very much money. But Bryn Mawr gave me a big scholarship and I came to Philadelphia sight unseen, thinking that America was a very different place than it was. Um, I had studied American history. My parents had bought me all the books about black history and um, I'd watched The Cosby Show and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had just come out the year I graduated from high school. So in my mind, I expected an America that was like the Cosby Show and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And what I came to was an America that was not so accepting of people who look like me. And my college actually still practiced affirmative action. And there were only 10 of us on my campus. And people made that really apparent to us, the 10 of us, that you're only here because we have to have you. People literally would say that out loud. Um, I was called the N-word. And imagine all of that without the internet, without being able to just text my parents and say, somebody just said this thing to me today. Um, so I had to navigate all of that as an 18 year old kid without family here. But that would drive me actually to becoming an educator in the United States and to devoting the last 30 years of my life to talking about race and um, working with kids who look like me and being a bridge in whatever way I can be. There's so much there to unpack. And, you know, having having listened to to you on other podcasts, having, you know, had a, had a really in-depth conversation well before before we hit record, um, I still find myself thinking, where do I want to start? Um, I'm I, I think where I want to go here, what I'm what I'm kind of curious about right now is that transition from where you were overseas to coming back to the United States. I mean, you know, you talked about how kind of the, the schema you were developing was coming from, you know, from, from the Cosby show, from, from Fresh Prince and what you discovered obviously was not that. Were there parts of your upbringing from the time you moved from Minneapolis to overseas, were, were there pieces that that you could draw back on that you could lean into to find your way through that or or how did how did you navigate that i guess is what what i'm asking well so there i've spent a lot of time thinking about this um just because i've had to like i don't get to not think about these things ever um they always come back and i'm always thinking about what are those elements that allowed me to survive you know, my my 78 year old white dad has asked me several times, why did you not kill yourself? Like he's just blown away all the time that I 
not only survived, but that I, I found ways to thrive, even in the midst of some really terrible circumstances, not just as a college student, but even later in life, raising black boys. And anyway, that's that's a whole nother story. But um, I think number one, and I say this to transracial adoptive parents all the time, it's really important that you raise your children knowing their history and knowing as much as possible about their culture. So they do have something to at least base their own heritage on. So they're not showing up in space completely blind. So I knew history and I knew the history of this country. So even though America was not as advanced around race as I expected her to be, it also was not a complete shock because I had studied, I had studied not only slavery, but I had studied just all the ways that reconstruction, I'd studied Jim Crow, I'd studied all of that stuff. Um, I'd studied the Harlem Renaissance I think it was the beauty of things like the Harlem Renaissance, of poets like Langston Hughes that talked about really hard times for Black people, but in ways that were really hopeful. I think it was literature that really helped me with that transition. I was going to be a pre-law major. That was my goal, was to be pre-law. So I planned to get a degree in English and then go to law school afterwards. And I think my freshman year, I realized I need to read literature by people who look like me and find that hope in literature. I'd always loved writing and reading. I loved language. And so I ended up getting a degree in English, French and Spanish literatures of the African diaspora. And I think finding hope in literature is a huge part of, of my salvation, the way that I made sense of the world. Um, I wrote a lot. I was, I was very alone. Um, because of course there there was no internet, there was no, I was not black like anyone else at my school and I was also not white. So I, it was really hard to find my community. Freshman year, I played college soccer and basketball. Um, by my sophomore year, I knew that that was just too much to try to do two sports, but playing basketball was a huge part also of my salvation. I could just be Aaron on the court and I was really good and um, that allowed me to have a place where I understood the rules and I was good at them and I could score a lot of points and make people happy, but it also made me happy. And I also, my fresh at the end of my freshman year, discovered outdoor basketball and I got to play street ball. So Philadelphia is one of the greatest places to play. I mean, I would, I would argue whether it's Philadelphia or New York or Atlanta, um, you know, back in the eighties, being able to play with, former NBA players with guys who were on the offseason. Um, I was always the only woman out there, but I got to play with like Dr. J. And um, later we would get to play with Monty Williams, who played at Notre Dame, who's now, uh, I think he's the Phoenix Suns head coach. But um, I mean, I got to play with guys like that. as And that, that gave me a place to just land for a while to kind of get my bearings. And, and I didn't, on the basketball court, no one made fun of the way I spoke English. And that may sound strange to people, but as a black person who grew up in Europe, I didn't speak English like I was from the city because that's not how I grew up. I could speak French better than I could speak street. <laughs> and, and that was a really hard thing. But as I played basketball, nobody cared about that because I could score a lot of points. So I got to just be and to be confident. And I think that just that practice of building confidence on the court and being in a place where people actually wanted me on their team really helped me get through 
four of the hardest years of my life, which was being in America by myself. Just such such a powerful piece there. And, and, and it makes me wonder, again, I mean, you've you've taken me from a place where I had a few questions now to I have so many questions. Um, so what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm wondering about right now, um, I mean, aside from I'd love to hear more about you getting to play basketball with Dr. J and with Monty Williams. Um, I mean, holy cow, that's awesome. Um, but but what, I, what I'm curious about right now, Aaron, where I kind of want to maybe 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 guide our our discussion. So from this point, you move into becoming an educator and making education such a critical part of your life. Before we talk maybe about your journey um, as an educator, I'm curious about something that that you've said and how it connects to our world today. Um, You talked about how you searched in the literature to find to find that community, to find people like you. Uh, right now, there are so many efforts being made. You know where I'm going with this. To, I do. I suspect. Yeah, to to not have books, whether whether it's it's race, whether it's LGBTQ, Gender, whatever it is, exactly. Whatever it is, there are efforts being made, honestly, by people who look like me. I'm embarrassed yeah. to say that, but that's true. How does a teacher help a student find somebody like them? And, and maybe, maybe my lead into that question was, was too loaded. Maybe it's just simply how do we help kids in our classrooms right now who need to find more people like them, whether that's yeah. through literature or whatever. Well, so I'm going to go with the loaded piece because I think the loaded piece is really important. And I think people need to hear my particular perspective around this because I am really passionate. My husband's also an English teacher. He's a large black ex-football player, English teacher and head football coach. Like those two things don't usually match, but he's the big, like <laughs> Not six always. Foot two, 350 pound black man who will do all the voices for Shakespeare in front of his students. He's such a nerdy literature guy. Such wow. a nerdy We need to get guy. him on the show. We do. We do. He's really pretty amazing. He's pretty amazing. Um, but I would say the, the greatest thing about America has been freedom of speech and, and our ability to read about lots of different things. That, that is what I think has been. And I told you, I've been to 16 countries. So. I, I am not someone who's not been very many places. I watched um, the Cold War from very close by. You know, we were not allowed to travel beyond um, the wall in Germany. It, literally, the wall came down four months after I came to the United States. So I watched wow. what happened in countries where they limited what students were able to read, what people were exposed to. And, and I think we saw the danger of that for other people. Now, I would offer that the folks, the same folks who are really critical of Russia and other Eastern European countries and other communist countries are the same ones trying to eliminate books from our classrooms right now, which is, I find incredibly ironic, incredibly ironic that to be American, what we were celebrating about America, the United States of America back in the 80s was, look at us, you know, we allow people to have the freedom of speech and to not be incarcerated because of things they say against the government or about the government. We allow people to read about lots of different perspectives, but now to be American is to only tout one particular way of being an American. And I, 
I will just say, as someone who grew up as an expatriate, very proud to be an American, I am crushed right now. I'm crushed right now because I really believe that to love this country means that we must both celebrate her and be critical. And that's what makes America the best nation in the world. That's the thing I think that makes us a great nation. And for too many people saying, no, nah, no, nah, we can't do that though. We can't do that thing. We can't, we can't critique her. You can't critique her that way. You can't take a knee at the flag. Can't read books about being black or brown or, you know, at the point they're taking Dr. King's books and Rosa Parks out of libraries yeah. for children. We have a real problem as a nation. And so um, I would say as a teacher, it is really critical for every child, whether they look like you or don't, to see themselves reflected back. And so I work really hard at that. I work really hard at when I was a classroom teacher, I worked really hard to make sure that I had literature in my classroom that reflected all kinds of perspectives. Um, Muslim, I had a lot of Muslim students. And so I worked really hard to make sure, even though I identify as a Christian, my husband was a pastor for a long time. Do you know who hung out with me in, in my classroom at lunchtime? My Muslim student hung out in my classroom. And that is a testament to, I created space where all students felt like I can belong here. Um, I taught at a school in a pretty conservative community where there was only one student that was vocally gay. He hung out in my classroom at lunchtime. And, and that is, that's what I want for students. It's not for students to become like me. So I don't think my task is to make students into my likeness or to make other leaders into my likeness. I don't think that's my task at all. I think the task of us as educators is to help people find their best selves and to empower them and give them the resources and tools, whether they're five years old or 55 years old, to become the best version of them. And at the point that we are trying to make everyone into our own image, we have lost who we are as a nation. And I worry that we're in that place right now. And um, I, I worry, I think, speaking of something you said earlier and something I've talked to my white dad a lot about is I worry that for white men in particular, they see the celebration of other as a diminishment of themselves. And what I've said to my dad many, many times is, but that's a scarcity mentality though. That is imagining this country as if it's a pizza. And if I take one piece of the pizza that leaves you with one less, but I would argue that we're just gonna make more pizzas. That's what I wanna do. I wanna make more pizza so that everyone can have lots, you can try lots of different pizzas and you can sample from different pizzas. Let's not imagine this country and opportunity as being this. Let's make the opportunity greater. And so it's not about dad when I say let's elevate the stories of black and brown and indigenous people and their histories. It's not about making yours smaller. It's just saying, I wanna take the spotlight that has been so narrowly focused on you, dad and people who look like you. I just wanna pull that spotlight back now and make sure that it's not just on one particular group, that we're able to see the beauty that is the diversity of this country. I love that so much. And I, I think, and I, I don't know, l let me run for a second and then you can tell me if you know you're, you're feeling on this. I truly believe that in their hearts, nearly all, I'd love to say all, but I'm going to say nearly all educators believe what you believe in that 
It is, it is our goal as educators to allow individuals to discover who they are, to become the best version of themselves, and to allow them to, to be exposed to all different types of, of people, of cultures, experiences, literature, on and on and on. I think, unfortunately, right now, we do have that myopic view from one particular area that doing what we love so much, doing what we're so proud to do, to helping kids discover who they are, has become this view of, oh, no, you're indoctrinating them or you are forcing them to become uh, you know, like you or like this person or whatever. I, I don't know. To me, it it doesn't just feel like it. To me, it is some external political pressures to take education honestly backwards a considerable, considerable length. And it's not just education. It is – I feel like this this is true in our country, period, that we're trying to go backwards. We're not trying to move forward. And and so, one, I want you to, to run with that, and then I want to – I actually have yeah. something I want to loop to that. But go ahead. Sure. I think – you know, and I think that comes from fear. I think when – when people are afraid of what is coming or they don't see it clearly. And I think the last two and a half years have been two and a half of the most, you know, I'm 51 in my 51 years. I can remember other times I can remember in during the cold war, I can remember being very afraid. Um, there was a year, I think 1988, 87 or 88, where we were not allowed to wear our letterman's jackets in public or American letterman's jackets because there were attacks on Americans in Europe. And I can remember being very afraid at that point and afraid, are we going to get into World War III with Russia? Um, there were just all this. And I went to school with the Palestinian kids and the Israeli kids in the 80s. So there was also that very real fear yeah. for us in our school. Um, you know, would there be an attack by one or the other on our, our school because we had both groups of students in our school? This is the next scariest that I've experienced. And I think with the pandemic, so much was up in the air and, and we, we lost so much. We lost people. We lost um, just the way that we do things. And I think when people are afraid, we buckle down. That's human nature. We buckle down. We hold on to that which we know to be true. And, and unfortunately, I think a group of very powerful people have now um, politicized that. And they have created a, a fear campaign knowing that people are afraid, knowing that <clears throat> that people are unsure about what's coming, knowing human nature is that when when we're afraid, what we tend to do, and I, I developed this theory last year because I was seeing more targeting of black students, LGBTQIA identifying students and immigrant students. In my work, um, the last year and a half, I've seen more physical and verbal targeting of students in the margins than ever in my 30 years. And And what I believe is it's not that we're more racist, it's not that we're more transphobic or homophobic. I think what happens when people are afraid is they hunker down in their own little corners and they hold on to what they know is true about their people group. And so what we'll do is we will attack anyone that we see as other, as different from us. And, and I don't think it necessarily makes people more hateful. What it tells me though is that we're afraid. And what I believe the only way to, to change fear into something helpful is to give people hope. And that goes back to the Langston Hughes poetry. It goes back to why I love Zora Neale Hurston, why I love my Anjou 
um, why I love the writing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because I think people right now really need hope. And it's why I think literature and media can be vehicles of hope if we choose to use them. But what's happening, back to books being taken out, we're taking books out of schoolhouses that could provide people with that hope for a better future. And it's that doubling down of, we're gonna hold on to our whiteness. We're gonna hold on to the American story that we, that makes us feel good about ourselves. But right. that's not honest. It's not honest and it can't lead us forward to a better place. We will return to the Leaning Into Leadership podcast in just a moment. But first, let me ask you a question. Have you ever said to yourself, man, I should write a book? Well, if you have, then let me ask you another question. What's holding you back? What keeps you from taking the step that moves you from, I have an idea about a book, to, I am a published author? From experience, I would bet it's probably you're wondering who would even want to read a book that I wrote. Maybe you're questioning the idea. Is it unique enough? Is it valid enough? Is it good enough to be a book worthy of having published? Hey, as a best-selling author myself, I can tell you most writers have had the exact same feelings at some point in time during their writing journey. Here at Road to Awesome, we believe in cultivating leaders by elevating voices and promoting positivity. And a part of that work is publishing books for educators by educators. Go to roadtoawesome.net and hit the Contact Us button to set up a free, no-obligation conversation about your book idea. Hey, educators, we've all had incredible experiences. We all have amazing stories, and every one of them deserves to be told. Go to roadtoawesome.net, hit the Contact Us button. Let's have that conversation about your book idea. And now, back to the Leaning into Leadership podcast. You spend all this time in education, and then there's this moment where... Now Aaron wants to do more. Aaron wants to have a bigger impact on the education system. And you decide to throw your name, your, throw your hat in the ring, if you will, and run for office. And not just any office. Not just any office. You, you ran to be in charge of education in the entire state of Washington. So let's talk about that. Um, yeah, I'm so um, curious about that. Well, I, and I need to back up a little bit there because I, my plan for myself when I got involved in education back in 92 was when I started volunteering in schools and 93 was when I got my first job in a school. I planned to be a classroom teacher forever. I was never going to be a school leader. That was never a desire of mine ever. Although <laughs> what's funny is every principal I ever worked for said, have you thought about being a principal? Every single one. Every, <laughs> even when I would, I would substitute teach in buildings and principals would say, wait, you came with a box? You have a box of supplies and lesson plans as a substitute? Yes, I'm ready. They would say, have you thought about being a principal? Never, never wanted to be a principal. Um, I ended up winning the Milken Teacher of the Year Award while teaching at a high school in Spokane. And at the red carpet event in LA, the superintendent of the state of Washington had watched me for 10 years of my career. I, as a first year full-time teacher in Tacoma, 
I volunteered to be the leader of our school improvement team as a first year teacher, which is like, who does that? Who <laughs> does that? But when nobody So to jump right in. I was like me, I'll do it. But here was the, the benefit of being the leader, which I had no idea at the time. I just, I'm not afraid of leading stuff. And, um, but the benefit was she, our state superintendent at the time would host every school improvement leader for a week at a resort for just some training on how to do school improvement in your building. And so I had three years in a row with her for a week. So she'd been following me. She'd been seeing my career develop. She saw how eager I was to make things better in my school space as a classroom teacher. And when I got nominated for that award and then received the award, she flew down. And I think at the time she was one of the only state superintendents who flew down with the candidate, but she knew me. And so I remember we're sitting at dinner the night of the award. So with the milk and you get a $25,000 check. So we're about to get the check, which is at the time, like my husband is a pastor. We're making no money. Uh, I'm working at a school. <laughs> like we are making no money. We have three elementary school kids. Like this $25,000 check is going to change our whole world. And yeah. I'm about to get the check. And the state superintendent turns to me. My husband is on one side. She's on the other. And she says, so what's your plan 10 years from now? I cannot tell you where my answer came from because I had never consciously thought this answer, but out of my mouth immediately came these words. And I, I cannot lie. I cannot lie. I want your job. <laughs> Those words. How did she react to that? So she, she was in her seventies at the time. Like there was no way she was going to run two more times. Um, mm -hmm. But I still don't know why the heck I said, I have no idea. This is 2008, it's February of 2008. I have no idea why I said that out loud. I, I didn't even know what a state superintendent did ever. I no idea. And my husband is so funny. I have not gotten my check yet. So he's really worried about, oh my gosh, you're going to piss her off and you're not going to get, he literally slapped <laughs> me on the leg underneath the table. I had a handprint, my big football playing husband left a handprint on my leg that night. He's like, honey, at least wait until after you get the check. What are you thinking? I said, honey, I don't know why I just said that. But she said, she said, well, if you're serious, I'm going to be calling you in a month. Well, she would call me in a month and offer me a job working for her. And I would leave the classroom, which I had never had any intention to do. And I would join her as a director at our state superintendent's office. She did not get reelected four months later. So here I am. We had moved our family from the east side of the state to the west side, which in our state is a really big deal. And now I'm going to have a new boss and maybe we're going to lose our jobs. That was the message going out that the new guy was going to let go of all the people she had hired. And so, man, I just got hired and now I'm going to lose my job and have to go back into the classroom in the middle of the year. Like just a nightmare. Well, the opposite happened, actually. I ended up getting recruited by the new state superintendent to work on cabinet. So I went from director to cabinet wow. within a year um, from classroom, which is complicated because I didn't do principalship. I didn't do school district administration. So here I am sitting at a table with all these people who um, were all 20 to 30 years older than me. I was one of two women. I was the only person of color. It was a lot. It was a lot. But here's the thing that I brought to the table that was invaluable. I had been a classroom teacher recently, 
not one of them, not one of them had been in a classroom for at least 20 years. And in fact, on that particular cabinet, I think only seven people had ever been in the classroom. Wow. So there was a level of clarity that I had about what was happening in classrooms that no one else had. I also had taught on both sides of our state, which no one else had done. I had lived in four different communities and worked in four different communities. I was raising three black children, one of them who's on the autism spectrum, one of them who's severely dysgraphic and ADD, and one of them who we adopted out of a gang family. I knew personally what it meant to educate children in the margins. I was living it myself. And I also knew what it was as a black mom to have to advocate with white administrators who often didn't want to listen to me. This is something hard for people to believe. I'm, you know, in our state, I'm Aaron Jones. You know, I have some gravitas. As a mom, I would go in to try to advocate with my kids and get blown all the way off. As a mom and a teacher, like I'm an award-winning teacher and I would literally have principals not want to talk to me about my kids. Um, I would have teachers try to pull things like not showing me the IEP, my son's 504 plan, not realizing that I know actually know how to write one. I understand the legal ramifications of not meeting. So I would walk into schools at the beginning of the year and say, okay, I've taught middle school. I understand my son has a really long 504. If you could just do these two things on it, I'll be really happy. And then have teachers not do that. And so here I am, I have this real world experience that I'm bringing to the table. But there were times when I would also get blown off on cabinet. Oh, you're just whatever. You're making too big a deal out of this yeah. or you're too young. You've never been an administrator. So I had to fight. I had to learn to fight to be heard at the table. Um, but I also had 20 years of playing basketball in men's leagues where I had to fight with white men <laughs> on a basketball court. And so all of those things, though, I tell people this, all of your story prepares you for that next part of your story. And so all of those things, being on a basketball court, you know, the other thing I did, I tried out for CWNBA teams at 28 years old. Um, I am all about doing hard things. I think it teaches my, my children to do hard things. It, it shows my students. When I tried out for the WNBA, I was a, a substitute teacher in Tacoma. My students got to watch me try out for the WNBA. They got to watch me train. I don't ask my students to do things I'm not willing to do myself. And all of that prepared me to sit on cabinet with a bunch of older white men who also are like my dad. Like I know how to speak older white men too. And I know that that part of my story prepared me to be in that place. I got sent often to Capitol Hill to testify because people knew Erin knows what she's talking about. In fact, our state went through one of the largest education um, lawsuits ever. I was the one chosen on cabinet to testify in that state case, which we won. Um, I would end up leaving the state superintendent's office, though, because the focus was not on equity and people didn't want to talk about equity. And that became untenable for me after four years sitting on cabinet. Um, so I did work for two large school districts on staff as the director of equity for two superintendents. And then I had a group of friends who <laughs> called me to an emergency dinner one night and said, we think you need to run for state superintendent. So it was not something that I 
chose to do myself. I probably would not have chosen it on my own, even though I had said it to the state superintendent 10 years earlier. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I could not have imagined doing it until this crew of friends that I really admire, all of them in different sectors in education, invited me to run. And I would become the first Black woman to run for any state office in our state. Um, I lost that race by one point, which I'm really glad about Still. because I would have been running <laughs> schools in a pandemic, which I'm really, my Oof. husband is happy for every day that I lost. Every yeah, I single day. I He's bet. so happy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and that's, yeah, that would be a whole nother part of your story, certainly that, uh, that, that you could tell, but, um, so, but, but that does lead me to, to another piece of your story, which is the book, Bridges to Heal Us. Uh, just tell, tell us just a little bit about that. What, yeah. What's that about and where, where did that come from uh, with you? So I have been, a, I mean, I was trained as a writer in four languages or three languages, really. Um, so I've always been writing little pieces here and there. Um, most of it not published. I use social media as a way to practice writing. So I have a page that I write about what I'm thinking about education on Facebook. I have a public page where I do that. I have a, um, I use LinkedIn as, as a way to kind of work out things that I'm thinking about regarding education. But it was really the pandemic and then watching Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd be murdered and, and watching our nation first really rally and I saw people rally and want to have conversations, but then I watched the backlash to that too. And and I watched that in really personal ways. I watched people from my own family respond really differently and in, in harmful ways. But I also watched, I said that my husband had been a pastor for a long time. Our church that we came to Washington State to serve in this church um, 25 years ago, when we first came, there were two other black families. So it was mostly white church. My husband got hired as the youth pastor, partly because he was a black man and they were hoping if they had somebody in leadership who looked like the people they wanted to serve, it would draw. And it did. And part of it, it draw also because I was a well-loved teacher and community. And so we had lots of black and brown children that wanted to be around us. And the church became a diverse place, um, fairly diverse. I mean, churches, Diverse churches are hard to come by, but I would say ours was probably about 30% people of color by 2020, um, 70% white. Lots of interracial marriages, lots of military spouses in interracial marriages at our church. But I watched as people responded to mask mandates and as people responded in really unhelpful ways to Black Lives Matter, and they talked about Black people on their social media in ways that were really gross. People I knew, people I'd known for 25 years. People I'd served. I'd raised up their kids. I'd loved their kids and their families. And I watched them say really horrible things about all Black people. But if I reached out, they would say, oh, but not you, though. You know, those other Black people. And it just, it was so painful to experience that, you know, one of the things that I... I prayed as a 19-year-old kid back when I was in the worst season of my life. I remember very clearly praying this prayer. God, use every painful thing that happens to me for someone else's healing. And so I knew about a year after Ahmad Arbery, I knew I want to write a book that helps people think about race. Because the revelation I had come to as an athlete is we are not more racist right now than we've ever been. 
but my generation, so people that are 50 or older, we're trained to not talk about race. And so we're unpracticed at it more than that we are more racist than we've ever been. We're unpracticed at talking about race. We're unpracticed at talking about gender. We're unpracticed at talking about sexuality. We're unpracticed at talking about religion and politics and mixed company. Those five things we're unpracticed at. And so we really suck at it. And over the last three years, we've had lots of opportunity for that to show itself. And so I thought, what if I were to take all the years of training that I've developed, all the hours, and use my personal story as a way to engage people in conversations about race in a way that is inviting? Because I, I tell people, I think there's a need for people to be aggressive and to be really activist and to march. Um, but I think there's also a need to build bridges. And I, I think there's a need for all of us to do the work in, in whatever way we are designed. And I know that I'm a bridge builder. And I, I know that I've lived through some really painful things when it comes to race. And so how can I use my stories, but also give people really practical strategies to take my story, think about their own story, and then apply that story to healing their own community. And that's really what the book is about. So it's, it's 15 chapters. It's really taking my 30 hours of training, putting them into 15 chapters. And um, I'm also a nerdy teacher. So I wrote a free study guide that anyone can ask for that I give people for free. Like that's awesome. I, <laughs> well, I mean, you're a teacher. And once you're a teacher, you're always a teacher, which means... Forever. You're always, yeah, you're always going to be there to support and, and do everything you can to help. I will make sure that uh, that the book is linked in the show notes, folks, so you can go and get a copy of that. It's available on Amazon. Um, wonderful, wonderful book. And, man, what an incredible conversation this is. Before we, we jump out of this conversation, of course, Aaron, I've got to ask you the same question I ask everybody here on the podcast. You know, that, that final question, or next to final question, but... The show is leaning into leadership. Um, you've given us a whole lot of ways you're leaning into leadership, but but what's maybe one other thing or one thing you want to hit harder that you're leaning into leadership right now? So we talked about this a little bit before you hit record, I think. I think the most important way that I'm leaning into leadership in this last season of my life, so the last year and a half or so, is being really vulnerable. I think I was raised up in an era where, especially being a woman in leadership, you got to be tough all the time. Got to be tough. Got to be tough. Can't show them what you're feeling. Can't let people know what you're really thinking. If things aren't great, um, you got to keep a smile on your face and be tough all the time. And I, I actually think that's inaccurate because I think it leads people to live lives that are not really authentic. And so I think the older I get and the more I have opportunities to lead in front of people, the more I'm trying to be vulnerable and really share when I struggle with things, when I'm tired, when I'm sick, um, when I'm wrestling with a problem that I can't find a solution for. And that for me is how I'm leaning in is with greater vulnerability, trying to be my most authentic self wherever I am, even when I'm in spaces where people may not accept me for it, where people may not want to have me come back. I mean, I think I always invite people in, um, but there may be times when people, you know, my hair is too big and this is just how it grows, by the way, um, where I, my nails are too flashy. That I've decided that's your problem, not mine. And so I'm going to show up with all six feet of myself. Well, six foot five, if you include the hair. Um, I'm going to show up fully me 
And if that's a problem for you, that's your problem. It's not mine. You know, it's it's almost too bad we didn't lead with that question because now that like starts this whole other train of thought around <laughs> around female leadership. And, you know, I mean, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about a handful of female leaders that I have worked with and alongside that, you know, no, I can't, I can't show emotion or, you know, I have to be, you know, I have to be the iron fist and that's just not true. Uh, so you are, you are always welcome at the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. We'll probably have to have you back on down the road and, and I don't know, maybe we'll pick up that part of the conversation because that's just, oh my gosh, that's just so amazing. This, oh my gosh, you know, I, I say it every time that I wrap up an episode here on leaning into leadership, but I don't know if I mean it, if I've ever meant it more than I do now, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. And I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you were willing to give me some time that we get to sit down and we get to talk and we got to reconnect. And I am certain that our listeners have just absolutely been entranced by this conversation. Thank you so, so very much, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, any opportunities to serve people, again, it's just, um, I see this as service to community. And so um, leaders, remember that you are enough. I mean, you can always grow and expand, but your story has made you exactly the person that needs to be in front of people. So trust that, trust that. What a powerful statement. Your story has made you exactly the person that needs to be in front of people. Very wise words from Aaron Jones. Thank you again, Aaron, for being a guest here on the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. I hope you picked up some incredible things from Aaron. Um, again, I just absolutely loved every bit of that conversation and truly appreciate her for who she is and what she stands for. Um, I'll make sure everything is linked for you down in the show notes, her TED Talks, uh, the link to her book, um, her website, all of that kind of stuff. So make sure you check out Aaron. Make sure you connect with Erin and reach out to her. And now it's time for a pep talk. So we're at that time of year when that last bus is driven away and finally you can just ah, breathe out, right? Maybe now you can actually take a little bit of time to get caught up on the emails and the paperwork and all that other stuff. And hopefully you can do something for yourself. Maybe take a nap, spend a little time with your family. But I know that after a few days, if you're like me as a school leader, you're going to start thinking about work. So let me challenge you to do this. As you get your mind going again, coming out of the break, I want you to reflect on how things are going. Get up on the balcony, take a look around, and think about, number one, your values and your priorities. How are you doing in those areas that truly matter to you? Make sure you check in on that. Number two, reflect on your goals. You remember your goals. You wrote them down in August. You had a plan. You were excited about them. You probably even shared them with your staff. And then the year happened. And wow, you've just been running like a mad person. Hey, get up on the balcony. Take a look. Think about your goals. Ask yourself some simple questions like, you know, what were my goals? What steps have I taken forward? What wins have I had? Don't forget to check in on the wins. They're just as important as the areas where you're falling a little bit short of the target. And then reflect on your team. No matter what that team is, whether it's a large leadership team or you and, and, and your counselor and your lead teacher, whoever it is that you have as part of your inner circle, check in on the team. 
How are we working collaboratively? How are we functioning towards the goals we set? And do I have the right people in the right seats? This is a good time to go back, reflect, review, and get yourself ready to go when we come out of the break. Thank you for joining me today on the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. I hope you have a road to awesome week. Thank you for listening to the Leaning Into Leadership podcast brought to you by Road to Awesome. Don't forget, click subscribe, give a review, and share this with somebody who might also enjoy leaning into leadership.